economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right, part two starts here. So Milton Friedman was influential with his corporate social responsibility, but there's people on each side of the fence 50 years later wondering if he caused more harm than good in terms of how the 80s shaped up and into the 90s and greed and all kinds of stuff. But then I think there's some good rational economic reasoning on the other side of the fence. So we we spent part one trying to lay out some of that. And today we wanted to get into some other opinions and nobody better than Justin to lead us off on this. So what do you got to say, Justin? All right. So I think we can start off by let's kind of outline what a typical response to Friedman is that's a negative response. And that says something like, okay, let's take Friedman's title at face value, which is the social responsibility of a corporation is to increase profits, right? That's taken to be his thesis. And one of the objections to this says, well, that kind of sounds like a moral claim, right? What a social responsibility is seems like a moral claim. And then if we say that a social responsibility of a corporation is just to increase profits, we know that increasing profits will make shareholders better off. That's one of Friedman's main arguments is that, well, the shareholders need to be made better off. The thing that makes shareholders better off is an increase in profits. Therefore, that is the responsibility of the CEO. But the response to this argument says, well, there are other people than just shareholders who are impacted by the decisions that a firm makes. And instead of shareholders, we can call these people stakeholders. You are a stakeholder in so you are a stakeholder in the decision of a firm insofar as you are affected by the decision that that firm makes. And kind of directly affected as opposed to like consumers who get to enjoy a new product that they came up with. It's a little bit more of a direct, although I think some people can say you could call it a consumer of a product, a distant stakeholder as well, I think. Is that right? I can't remember from, but I'm thinking more employees and supply chain, like your suppliers. And I just want to use the definition that I gave because what you're getting at is a further objection to my objection. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Uh, So let's work through this objection first. And then you raise that because it, it is a very good point. Okay. So a stakeholder then is anyone who is affected by the decision that a firm will make. And this objection says, surely what the moral thing a company ought to do, the moral responsibility of a company when it's making decisions needs to include the effect that that decision will have on stakeholders. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so then... This is usually classified as the stakeholder objection to Friedman, which is it is not the case that stockholders are the only people whose well-being ought to be considered and ought to be morally or socially relevant to the decision that a firm makes. 
It is instead of stockholders, it is the stakeholders whose well-being needs to be. And, and listeners, just to be clear, the stockholders are also stakeholders. So they are kind of, if we did a little Venn diagram, they're a smaller group of the overall stakeholders. All stockholders are stakeholders. Not all stakeholders are stockholders. Right. And so then when this objection is usually levied, you will usually get a lot of examples of a company, you know, making a decision to do something like, you know, outsource a factory to Mexico, where the stockholders in the company may see an increase in profit due to the fact that their labor costs go down, right? But we can see, well, who are the stakeholders in that kind of decision? Surely the people who worked in, you know, the factory in the factory town who now are unemployed, they are stakeholders in that decision, even though they might not be stockholders in the company. And this objection says, surely these people's well-being ought to be considered too. And so in that example, I think it's a perfect spot to say, does the stakeholder theory say that the job losers in America have a greater moral claim or otherwise a better, more of a claim than do the job gainers in Mexico? The stakeholder theory itself doesn't take a stand on that. It just says that the stockholder conception of social responsibility is too narrow and that okay. we need to include like that that should be taken into account whether yes. whatever side of the fence the point is take and it what, into account and whatever weight we want to assign to the, their interests just that their interests ought to count okay and so one of the i mean this might seem all pretty academic and abstract but you know there was an article that russ passed around to all of us, and it just came out in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, which is a bunch of reflections on Milton's Friedman's position. And this article was titled, A Free Market Manifesto That Changed the World Reconsidered. And the readers can go find this on the NY Times if they want, and I'm sure we'll, we'll try to link to it in the show notes. But it has a bunch of business leaders and economists reflecting on Friedman's argument saying what they thought he got right and what they thought he got wrong. And so maybe, maybe that's a good place for me to stop talking for a second and see if anybody wants to. I'll, I'll just that. throw out one quote from Martin Lipton that he said, the Friedman Doctrine precipitated a new era of short-terminism, hostile takeovers, junk bond financing, and the erosion of protections for employees and the environment to increase corporate profits and maximize value for shareholders. This version of capitalism was ascendant in the 80s and continued in until the 2008 financial crisis when the perils of short-terminism were vividly illustrated and the long-term economic and societal harms of shareholder primacy were becoming increasingly urgent. So I'm like, wow, that's laying a lot on Friedman, I think. <laughs> that yeah. basically everything that went wrong from that over multiple decades. <laughs> well, and, and I think there's actually something a, a, like a little wrong there, like analytically. The weird thing is you can have a, a moral argument against Friedman here. I think we can have the moral argument and Justin's, again, you know, particularly probably positioned to do that. But it, like even there, there's sort of an economic argument in there that I think is just wrong. This idea of like short term, like this is brought up a lot that companies that are focused on shareholders are going to focus on the short term. Economic theory and, you know, what we kind of see in the world is that when we have capital owners to a company and we, you can buy and sell that capital, that capital's value is based on the future value of the capital. It's the discounted future value insofar as people have information. Obviously, you don't you can't get it perfectly right. 
because, you know, there's information that's costly in the world, but it's, it, it takes into account future decision-making. But what you notice is, and you can do this with models or you can do it with simple examples, when you take away the ability to, you know, buy and sell a certain portion of a company and maybe you, you know, give that right to a, a stakeholder who can't buy or sell part of the company, the company tends to focus more on the short term. And so, for example, workers may be interested in a short-term pay raise that's going to give them money today at the expense of, you know, the company in 40 years when the worker's not going to be there anymore. Whereas the capital owners, because their capital includes the value 40 years out, they're going to be interested in 40 years from now. So I would actually contend it's, it's probably the opposite, that the closer we are to shareholders and the further we are from stakeholders, the more future looking we're going to be. Can I add something to that? Sure. A lot of what you find in the objections to Friedman is that what we ought to have instead of the stockholders preference is a kind of governmental oversight on what these companies ought to be doing, right? And one thing that we that comes out very clearly, if you do a kind of economic analysis of what's in the incentive of a government bureaucrat to do, their incentive is very short term, right? Because there's no such thing as ownership and government control of a resource. And so they have all the incentive to drain as much productivity out of the resources that they control for the time being before they have to potentially hand it over to their competitors, right? Yeah. Well, and I, I think a lot of the problems of the 80s is we did go through somewhat of an infancy, I think, on aligning the, what, what economists call the principal agent problem, where you've got corporate executives that had incentives for their bonuses and their pay to be short-sighted potentially for their own personal interest. And so in theory, if they were selfless, like we think some of these politicians are, that wouldn't have mattered. But of course, public choice theory and other economic incentives tell us that that's, that's a pretty important factor. So I think over the last 30, 40 years, corporate America has addressed that in different ways in the way the payment schemes come out in order for them to get those bonuses the company has to have performed well over the long haul. There's not really a perfect way to address that, but it has been addressed because it was outraging uh, shareholders, actually, was probably the, the main thing. And of course, the, then there's just good old corruption that is probably unavoidable no matter what the system would look like with the Enron cases. And and I think part of the comment that I wrote, did with hostile takeovers and junk bond financing, blah, 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 all that is I think a lot of people cherry pick the anecdotal corrupt stories. And then that's the picture that's painted of corporate America, whereas it's probably a fraction of a percent of what's actually going on in corporations when we look at total corporate output and a share of GDP, for instance, most corporations were probably functioning fine. Yeah, I think a good kind of connection of these last two points, Justin, your last point, Russ, that point is uh, Thomas Sowell's old phrase that you always have to ask compared to what? And so certainly there's principal agent problems in corporations, obviously, otherwise we, we wouldn't even need corporations. That's a different uh, topic there. But the question is, compared to what, you know, compared to bureaucrats? Well, we've got some principal agent problems going there too, which Justin just brought up. But I also want to take a, a step back to something just, or, uh, Russ brought up earlier to Justin, which is there is some sort of uh, fuzziness here where it's not clear to me exactly who is a stakeholder versus, you know, shareholder, that's easy. You, you have the title, you're shareholder. And if we can't actually define who a stakeholder is, like, you know, it seems like even like generations, hundreds of years from now can be affected by companies' decisions today insofar as like that grows the wealth of society. And so like, if the kind of kind of the old uh, phrase, you know, if everybody is a stakeholder, then no one is. 
I wonder if there's like any sort of reasonable definition of stakeholder that we can get that we, we can sort of work with so we can talk about it and critique it, or if it's such a broad definition that it, it might even be vacuous. What do you think, Justin? I'm very uh, sympathetic to the claim that it's so vague as to be vacuous. And for the following reason, you know, like you mentioned, there it's it's very unclear to determine whether or not it's just the workers in a factory or the workers who are now employed in Mexico who count as stockholders. It's also unclear whether or not we need to count future people as stockholders. If so, how do we wait? Stakeholder, just to, yes, you you were saying stock, but it was, yeah, state. Yeah, thank you. That would have really been confusing. Uh, it's, (laughs) it's, it's, It's very unclear whether or not future people who will come into existence are considered stakeholders. Right. If so, how do we weight the interests of future people against current people? How do we weight the interests of people who are getting the job in Mexico against people who are losing the job here? These are all questions which stakeholder theory has to answer if they want stakeholder theory to be a kind of decision procedure which firms are supposed to use when they are deciding whether or not to take a particular action, right? Yeah. And I see kind of a masterminded, centrally planned, like, oh, you have to weight it a certain way could be the the worst position we could get to from a government perspective. I think most stakeholder people would say, well, that's up to the corporate executive to assign those weights, right? And so I guess to them, it's not what they would advise, but a stockholder theory as Friedman's puts a hundred percent weight on the stockholders, right? And then stakeholders now starts to spread out some of that consideration to other folks. So they could be, well, maybe it's 90% stockholders and 10% employees. And then we start filtering out as you just did with the menagerie of stakeholders before something becomes so diluted that I think it's to the, the manager's advantage, that it can be whatever they want it to be. And then we're back to them potentially cherry picking their own uh, special interests of what they want to support as community interest, rather than who decides these weights. Do the stakeholders actually help decide the weights or is it all residing with the manager? So can I say something maybe a little bit about how Milton Friedman did answer this objection in the early 2000s. Yeah. Um, so there was a, uh, a debate in Reason Magazine between John Allison, who was the CEO of BBT Bank, and John Mackey, who was the CEO of Whole Foods, on the shareholder versus stakeholder. And Allison came down on Friedman's side and said, look, it's just about increasing profits. That's what my shareholders want. And that's the way we do business. And it's the correct version of business ethics. And Mackey said, no, no, no. Look how successful Whole Foods is. I don't operate on shareholder. I don't operate on the shareholder basis. I try to take into account that Whole Foods needs to do things for the community. I very much consider stockholder uh, the well-being of stockholders, not just stakeholders. And then Mackey went further and said, And you know what? It's also been very uh, profitable for me to do that. And that's what my actual stockholders want me to do. That's why they purchase stock. So he almost answered the question right there or made the point. Yeah. So then to probably, you know, the chagrin of John Allison, who was, of course, trying to defend Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman's response to this was, oh, actually, I agree with Mackie. Mackie is doing the right thing, right? He is doing what I advised when I said 
increase profits. I just assumed that's what stockholders really wanted in that case. But if your stockholders want to take into account things like, you know, the neighbor uh, beautification of neighborhoods, et cetera, then that, that's exactly what you should be doing. So Mackey is actually operating according to what I recommend as well. And that's great and good for Mackey to having a great, for building such a great company doing what I recommended. Now that may seem like splitting the baby, but one thing I want to say in favor of Milton Friedman's analysis here, right, is that if you grant that stockholders themselves can be concerned with stakeholders and with the well-being of stakeholders, and since stockholders are people, right, and they, you know, since we know from, you know, Adam Smith's The Theory of Moral Sentiments, we know that people are generally concerned with the well-being of other people. We actually have an answer about how we ought to weight stakeholders, and we weight stakeholders according to how much each stockholder weights the stakeholder. Mm-hmm. And we know exactly how to do that because stockholders own, you know, a number of shares, which is a real integer, right? And so we can weight these concerns. Yeah. Um, so even if... But we can't know their concerns perfectly, I guess would be the only thing. And we have a diverse set of concerns across the 10,000 stockholders, per- perhaps. Yes, but we can aggregate them. Instead of not giving us any answer, it at least gives us an answer. So if what we're looking for is a decision procedure, then this at at least gives us a kind of calculating machine. Comes back to the voting of what should we do at the annual meeting, that sort of thing. Well, that looks like a good spot for a break. When we come back, I want to mention Starbucks, who's been on the stakeholder side and see what Justin's thoughts are there. So we'll just be back here in 30 seconds. Please visit our website at 123povertysucks.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysucks or on Facebook at Gortney Institute for updates on our activities and research. At the Gortney Institute, we keep our professors up to date on continuing education. Just this previous weekend, we uh, attended the Free Market Forum. That's an annual event uh, put on by Hillsdale College and learn from professionals uh, in multiple disciplines about how we can sharpen our skills in the classroom in providing top-notch education. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith, and economics in action. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. All right, welcome back. We've got Starbucks on the agenda here. So Howard Schultz was concerned with people. And so Starbucks initiatives included providing part-time baristas with healthcare and tuition-free college, volunteering in neighborhoods, talking openly about racism and help, helping impoverished youth for, find first jobs. The ethos fueling such efforts that companies have a responsibility to enhance the societies in which they flourish was integral to Starbucks' ability to employ great people and attract customers, which in turn drove a 21,000% return to shareholders between 1992 and 2018, the year I stepped down as executive chairman. And so I look at a statement like that and everybody says, yeah, we should all be like Starbucks. But how much of Starbucks was actually due to their innovative way of bringing good quality coffee? And so I think 
they were profitable and then were able to feed that back into the loop. And it might've been through weighing, Justin was saying earlier, weighing out their customer preferences and that it would be a profitable thing to do. But to, to say that that's what led to all of their success, I thought was a, a pretty big stretch on a statement like that. So, so that's something to float out there. Peter, what did, where did you want to take this? Yeah, so maybe kind of on a similar route to Starbucks, pierce into it a little bit. There was a, there was a controversy in economic, you know, a, a little earlier in the 20th century where an economist went around and he did a survey of different business owners and he asked them how they determined their prices. And so in economic theory, there's certain, you know, and depending on your condition, you know, you set marginal revenue equal to marginal cost and that's where you set your price. And so what the, the surveyor pointed out is, hey, none of these businesses say they're trying to figure out the marginal revenue and marginal cost. They're saying that they, they're doing their cost plus their markup. Well, cost plus markup, that's not an economics way of pricing things efficiently. Therefore, prices in the market are efficient, inefficient because they're not using the efficient rule. But what an economist Fritz Makla points out to this person is that, well, no, economists aren't saying that businesses have to use this rule specifically to maximize efficiency. It's that the market will create conditions whereby we converge to the rule. So this cost plus markup thing is actually probably getting to the same price where marginal revenue equals marginal cost. That's the great thing about the market is people don't necessarily need to know how. How this relates to our shareholder stakeholder thing is that it could also be the case here uh, that the social responsibility that Starbucks or whoever it is takes on is something that maximizes their profit in several ways. If people are really interested in what Starbucks is doing, then people are going to be more willing to pay for their stocks, more going to be more willing to pay for capital. There's going to be an increased demand to be a shareholder. And so that's going to bid up the price of your stocks. And so that's one way that you could have a, a higher price stock for doing something that people are interested in. The second is consumers might take this in, into account too. And so if you can increase your sales by signaling some sort of you know, social responsibility that consumers are happy about, and that's part of the good people are buying. And so like Tom's shoes is maybe a great example of this. You know, uh, Tom's shoes don't hold up very well, but part of the good is that they give a shoe to someone else in a different country. You know, and, and people have debates about how much good or bad this has done. But the point is, uh, that that could be part of, part of the good that people are buying. And so uh, it's not necessarily the case that these two things are mutually exclusive. You, the profit maximizing solution may also be uh, one that involves corporate social responsibility. It, it, and the, that might also, you know, dovetail well with the interest of the stockholders. And so uh, that, that's kind of my take on this whole thing. Well, and it is called five bucks for a reason that maybe the price is building in. Yeah, <laughs> that's, right. Mm-hmm. that's right. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so on that charity, Oliver Hart was another person who chimed in that Friedman argued that companies should focus on making money and leave uh, ethical issues to individuals and government. One good example is charity. Rather than making charitable contribution, wouldn't it be better for a company to increase its dividend and let shareholders give their own favorite charities, give to their own favorite charities, which was a point we were trying to make on part one that there can be this crowding out type of effect that we have less in individual hands. And I kind of want to turn to Justin on, do these moral claims really belong with individuals and that the world would be a better place if we all kind of thought that way rather than relying on Starbucks to be our generous charitable supporter? Yeah, that's another claim that I'm actually really sympathetic to, which is this idea that the social responsibility of a corporation, what are you talking about the social responsibility of a corporation? If you're talking about moral duties, individuals have moral duties. And, uh, you know, 
the actions of corporations are just, you know, the actions of a bunch of individuals. And insofar as you are the shareholder in an organization whose decision is going to impact a lot of people, you have a moral obligation to take the people who are going to be impacted by that decision into account. Now, it doesn't tell you how much you have to take them into account, but that is your moral responsibility, not the responsibility of some entity over and above you, say the corporation. And isn't that part of the stronger version of Friedman's argument that I don't think I really fully appreciated early on that there's actually a moral obligation of the uh, managers of the company to the stake to the stockholders to the owners to just maximize profits rather than chase some other agenda. And again, as we've reflected on this episode, maybe if the if the stockholders know up front that there's multiple objectives, blah blah blah, that well then that that's maybe fine. But I think Friedman was somewhat saying that they have a moral obligation to the stockholders. Is that a fair statement? He definitely says they have a legal obligation and I and he he kind of elides between legal and moral, but I think his claim is the one that you're saying that he has a moral obligation. Now in the early paper, he says they have a moral obligation to increase profits, right? But in the later uh, response, he says, no, what they have a moral obligation to do is fulfill the wishes of the stockholders. Those wishes uh, will of course, partially concern turning a profit, but they might also include things like uh, concern for stakeholders as well. Yeah. And so I think the a lot of these criticisms are like, well, what if it's more profitable, but it ends up hurting some people, right? Would be some sort of claim like that. And I think Friedman clearly says, f- you're, you're going to maximize profits following legal and social norms, right? So if we know that an action of a company is actually going to, I don't know, pollute the stream and hurt the environment or something. And it's a social norm that we don't just throw trash around. And maybe it's a legal, maybe it's a law that you can't dump pollution or throw trash around. Then you're, you're operating well within Friedman's framework by maximizing profits, but staying within the guidelines of society. Yeah. I actually think that that's one maybe fair criticism of, uh, so I, I think this idea of, of stakeholders versus, you know, shareholders I am also on board with the the vagueness of the stakeholders makes this kind of hard argument. But one argument I do find convincing is it's a little bit difficult to pin down exactly what you even would want to mean when you talk about like following rules and social norms in society. You know, so we as economists know there's some efficient amount of pollution, like there shouldn't be zero breeding is polluting that we now know if you follow the the carbon and the, the global warming stuff. And so there's some efficient amount of pollution. Well, how much? It's It's just not very clear. And so following the norms of society, well, how much of the norms of society and, you know, how much are you allowed to break them until you're in trouble? And and I think that Friedman's argument, and I don't think it can, but Friedman's argument uh, doesn't really answer that fact. Yeah, I think one uh, one thing that you might be getting at, correct me if I'm wrong, is it seems like Friedman, he explicitly does say, let's assume that we are operating in a market system with well-defined rules and property rights. Right. And we know of such a system that in such a system, when people uh, pursue the profit motive, they end up benefiting everybody else. Right. right? And yep. so then just by definition, firms are going to be doing good when they pursue their own uh, best interest. Yes. Um, and the objection might be, okay, well, what about in a world where uh, there is some vagueness on every one of those issues. 
what should we do in that kind of world? And Friedman's response might be, well, you should work on creating a world with the right kind of institutions then. Right. But that won't help somebody who has to make a firm decision tomorrow. Right. So there's one other comment here that um, was a criticism. It said, Friedman makes the mistake of not including two words, long-term. And I think my argument back to that is, uh, and maybe it was a, a little bit of a oversight, but for, I think for Friedman, it didn't need to be said because as we've stated earlier, that the, the maximizing shareholder wealth involves looking at the long-term that decisions today would influence something that's gonna happen 10 years so I think it was all implicit in, yeah. in, in Friedman's statement on what that meant. And it was uninformed people that took it the wrong direction to mean um, somehow short-term profits. They actually also cite in here, Friedman was one of his quotes, governments never learn, only people learn. And so investors and corporations have learned a better and more holistic way to serve our shareholders for the long term. So this was a person saying, a criticism trying to use freedom and the word against them, but I don't think they did that very successfully because I think that's exactly the same here for a firm. All right. Well, any other closing thoughts here? Have we resurrected and saved Friedman's arguments from the people who maybe just didn't understand them all the way? I know that there would be, it, actually, I would love to get a stakeholder theory person on our podcast and actually have kind of an active debate to see if uh, uh, see how things would would shake out. But I don't know if we can get John Mackey or, or somebody else. I assume, although Whole Foods now Whole Foods since we brought that up has gone through its ups and downs. And I I couldn't help but think when Whole Foods was not doing so hot that like oh maybe shareholder theories or stakeholder mm -hmm. theories not all it's cracked up to be. Maybe we should have looked at the bottom line profits a little bit more, and we wouldn't have some Whole Foods businesses closing in different markets or struggling anyway. So, yeah. well, my, my, my final, my last word take is that I think that basically most people's default view is the stakeholder theory. Most people are not taking on Friedman's view. And so I still think, despite, you know, some of the fuzziness with the property rights and things like that, that Friedman's view of shareholder supremacy, I think is an underrated argument relative to what people think. And so I still think there's value in teaching it and discussing it because I think the, the norm argument is that we shouldn't be worried about maximizing profits. And I think that's reflected by all these executives who seem to not understand, for example, the long-term stuff who are disparaging it. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, that's how, how, what I've always held to is a shareholder or stakeholder theory really is shareholder theory. They just don't know it. I, I think is the way I would close things out. So all right. On behalf of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University, we appreciate you all listening and uh, hope you can find us on, uh, in a five-star merit and do so on your apps. It helps other people find us. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.